This is the smell of a warm three-day-old egg salad sandwich in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! Blech! And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag with new Fabuloso lemon scent. Hefty, hefty, hefty! <sighs> smell the difference? When life gives you stinky, get hefty, ultra-strong with new Fabuloso lemon scent. It smells like clean, freshly picked lemons. So no matter what's inside your trash, you can stop the stink and smell the lemon. Hi folks, how you doing? I hope you're well. Thank you so much for choosing to listen to this episode of Soundtracking with me, Edith Bowman. Very much appreciate it. Um, last week on the show, if you were listening, I teased a little bit of information about the BAFTAs. Um, so I thought I would share that information with you if you didn't already hear. But myself and Mr Dermot O'Leary are going to be hosting the actual BAFTA Awards this year. I am beyond excited. It means the world to me and I I can't wait. Sunday the 11th of April, we are going to be on BBC One uh, bringing you the awards. Oh my God, can't believe it's happening. Anyway, let's go on to some uh, more pressing matters and our latest episode of Soundtracking sees us joined by an incredibly prolific composer who currently has, well, a couple of very exciting projects for you to feast your ears and eyes on. Henry Jackman's latest work can be heard on Apple TV's Russo Brothers film Cherry uh, and Falcon and the Winter Soldier, which is streaming weekly on Disney+. Plus. Um, loving Falcon and the Winter Soldier. We just watched the second episode of it. It's dropping every Friday on uh, Disney+. Plus. I don't know, I'm just really happy and enjoying all these wonderful kind of character studies that they're doing, you know, as they make their way through these brilliant, characters that have been around for so long when you think about it and how they've stood the test of time and how Kevin Feige and his brilliant team at Marvel have just created this, I think, brilliant world. And I know that my family and I are thoroughly enjoying everything they throw our way. So keep it coming. Um, we've got Loki to look forward to in June as well. Can't wait for that one. Um, and Cherry, which is Anthony and Joe's film. And it's got a really personal connection um for them in in relation to their own personal experience of losing someone to um opioid addiction and also it's based and set in their hometown so it's got a it's got a real personal touch to it and i think the emotion really shows through i think the way that they've visually chosen to uh, represent and tell this film is is brilliant and Tom's performance is extraordinary, as is Henry's music. And he is an absolute joy to spend time with. But before we speak to him, a word from our good friends at Sofa.com. Now, when it comes to watching films and TV, I genuinely think that one of the most important things that can enhance the experience is having the perfect sofa to snuggle up on. And that's where Sofa.com come in. A premium brand that makes beautiful, comfortable, handmade products. They are the perfect choice to help you create your perfect sofa. First, you could choose your ideal shape. You might want something traditional or maybe go for something a bit more contemporary. Then you've got to work out the size. You'll find the perfect fit, whether the space you have is cosy or sprawling. And then when it comes to fabrics, you really are spot for choice with hundreds of options to style things your way. Now, finding it hard to decide on colours and textures well why not order a few free fabric swatches to match colours with other furniture or decor what's not to love about your sofa being handmade to your specific requirements especially for you and delivered right to your door to find out more and begin creating your dream sofa simply visit sofa.com and so to Henry. Now, unfortunately, his score for Falcon and the Winter Soldier has yet to be released. So we will edit in the relevant cues if and when they become commercially available. Thankfully, though, the fantastic Cherry score is available via our good friends at Lakeshore. And it's with a cue from that that we begin Triangle of Death. <laughs> Thank you. 
How's it going? Really good. Thanks so much for doing this, Henry. That's all right. I was. Um, it's really interesting when I've been looking back at um, some of the directors that we've had in the past on the on the show, and you've featured really heavily. Oh yeah. Since we launched back in 2016, so it's great to finally get you on. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> Let me repeat what I was saying earlier, which was as well as having this brilliant collection of films that we've I've talked about on the podcast. When I kind of sit down and look at the list of films that you've you've worked on specifically around in this past year the kids the films that my kids and I've gone back to watching again I've got two boys eight and twelve oh, okay you you have filled our world I mean <laughs> I, I would say weekly with everything from um Wreck-It Ralph, Puss in Boots, Detective Pikachu. Oh, I mean, just the most amazing collection. Big Hero 6. Oh, my God, that film. That was a really cool movie, that. I'm surprised they didn't make another one. It's really good. Me too. Me too. And I hadn't watched it in a long time, and we sat down and watched it again, and it is the most beautiful film. I loved it. loved going back to and it really stands the test of time and I always think it's the same with those films you kind of there's layers to them so the more you watch them the more you kind of reap the benefits of almost in a way as well oh for sure well yeah if the movie's got any content if it hasn't uh, each viewing will only reveal how, how awful yeah. it is. <laughs> Pain, painful yeah yeah exactly um I also had the pleasure of um doing a, a remote Q&A with the the Russo brothers and Tom and Sierra oh wow about a month ago for Cherry, massive congratulations on on the score and the music for that film because it's it's such an important an important part of the narrative really in terms of understanding this character. I think yeah that that was probably the most everything about doing the score for Cherry was a bit very peculiar in a good way <laughs> you know like the whole process of it was it was like a being a mad professor locked in a laboratory for six months just sort of being experimental <laughs> oh wow did they encourage you to do that or was that something you felt it needed from reading the script covid covid kicked in so i wasn't going anywhere i mean it probably would have been a bit like that anyway it was more like make it was more like being an odd recording artist than a you know what i mean <laughs> it was a bit like being a cross between like aphex twin van gelis and radiohead uh, you know and making an album rather than you know because it didn't really have any symphonic i mean i love big symphonic scores but cherry was a totally different animal Go and see that band live though, that that crossbreed for sure. That would be an amazing <laughs> yeah. gig. Yeah. yeah, that would be that like, if you I'd throw you know what I'd throw late talk talk in there. Ooh, lovely. You know, like Spirit Spirit of Eden and they made some really cool it's influ actually just throwing those names out, that wasn't accidental actually, in that you know, Brian Eno, Vangelis 
and those two bizarre talk talk albums called spirit of eden and laughing stock are really cool anyway so so yeah cherry wasn't so much like a big symphonic score and felt more like you know because there's a lot more production and engineering and going round and round just craft it it's a slightly different technique it's a slightly different process to you know if you're writing a big kong skull island yeah for four minute cue that's a big symphony it's a different kind of composition whereas it kind of brought me back to my record industry days in a way cherry because it was it was a bit more like making an album yeah obvious to you that it was going to be a particular type of score that was required for this film once when you read the script and um, were there conversations that you had with with Joe and Anthony about it? Yeah we definitely had conversations about it they were extremely excited because you know it was their first big directorial thing since Avengers and it was obviously going to be a completely different type of filmmaking to the successful you know superhero stuff that they'd been uh, basically conquering the world with (laughs) Yeah, I don't think I knew exactly what I was going to do until I saw the first cut. And to be honest, it's deceptive to say I knew exactly what I was going to do. It was seriously experimental. When I saw the first cut, the the basic vibe was let's do something really eclectic. But due to the nature of the movie, it's going to have to have all sorts of flavours and tones and whatnot. Yeah. So I, I was up for the eclecticism. But then the other thing is that, well, you know, what we don't want is a score where people go, hey, this is interesting. It's got all these like cool, completely different pieces. But ultimately, it's just a total dog's breakfast. And doesn't really add up. So what I wanted to do, I don't know if I have a piano sound here. The one thing I remember coming up with after seeing the first cut, I don't know why things working. Yeah. This thing that went, uh, 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 uh. It's the last cue in the, and I had this, uh, This tune sounds truly terrible. It's so beautiful. Well, I don't know about that. It sounds a bit crap on the piano. But I had this basic um, theme uh, because I wanted to make sure that amongst all the various different colours and all the different things the movie had to do, there would be some sort of coherent Mm. DNA that could be twisted and used so it doesn't just feel like, you know, all kinds of craziness. I mean, there was other things. Another thing was um, the idea of the Carnival of Losers for his like Cherry's kind of sad messed up life that <laughs> yeah. was a bit witty because instead of being some grungy band thing we went the opposite way made it like a Chopin-esque kind of um <laughs> yeah like a chaplain like almost kind of like a chaplain film yeah you know what they're like smoking weed in the back of a car and arguing about joining the marines and stuff like that yeah. meanwhile you're getting this like Eric Satie meets Chopin type of uh what like and I sort of made sure the tune kept going downwards to signify like it's heading downwards just like their lives. clever though because when you you know when you listen to it you you connect with it but but when you talk about it it's so interesting to think about the thought process that has got into the relevance to that to the story and the narrative well it's interesting you said obviously when people watch a movie you know you don't want them to do any of that but for anyone who's like interested in the you know filmmaking process it's one of those things where hopefully by the time you watch a movie everything's so nailed it just becomes this homogenous uh, uh, experience not comprised of its, you know, component parts. 
you can almost be deceived into thinking it was sort of it came out of the womb like that and as soon as you get interested in filmmaking you find out the endless hours of people's lives that go into <laughs> and not just me you know meaning i think what the picture editor went through and the costume people and the cinematographer and the edit and the directors and the pre print it's just like once you start finding out you know how the city of rome was built <laughs> yeah. um, it does become quite interesting. But the funny thing about Cherry was I just sort of didn't get straight into the individual scenes and the cues. I wrote the piece that on the soundtrack is the second to last track, you know, the big long one called The Come Down. Mm-hmm. Before I got into individual pieces, I just wrote a standalone, like seven minute suite called The Cherry Suite, which had all those big synths and the tune that I was playing and, and the uh, the little piano thing. You know, so I just wanted to explore that thing. So I wrote that and they really seemed to respond to that. And I said, well, look, let's keep going in this, um, not knowing exactly what the music's doing and where for now. And I'll write another piece, which is the very last track on the soundtrack called What I'm Trying to Say Is. So good. love the instrumentation of it i just love the inch i love the choice of of what's making the sounds well the choice you, you say choice is quite accidental basically due to covid <laughs> i don't play any i play the piano right and and all kinds of production messing around but you know i'm not i don't play the guitar I'm, i've got no chops at all so um i filled the garage with um a ukulele that was like a tourist purchase <laughs> from the cook islands at the airport a zither that my father gave to me that was missing two strings and was out of tune, an Andean harp that I physically myself managed to drag over from Peru in 1995, and most of whose strings are actually like cassette wire, and it's completely out of tune. <laughs> and just filled the garage with all this stuff and then dragged it in, set up a microphone and went, okay, I'll just, and an Ambira, all these things I basically couldn't play, you know. And I just started putting this track together and all the way through, I was thinking, I can't work out if this is one of the most embarrassing piles of crap ever written or, or whether it has something to, and, and the, there's a keyboard thing that shows up halfway through that playing the chords, uh, which was uh, $4.99 from a thrift store. It's like the cheapest piece of crap you've ever seen. Like half of it, half the settings like didn't work. And so the whole thing was a bit of a Dr. Doolittle. So, you know, you can imagine when I first started putting the track together before it was, you know, properly assembled and I knew what I was doing with it, it was a pretty embarrassing lesson, you know. And I played it to my, uh, the music editor, Jack Dormer. I was like, I don't know. I think I should probably abandon shit, right? He said, no, no, no. I said, but listen to it. Not only is the instrumental playing like shockingly crap, you know, and I hadn't put it together. I'm not sure we should play this to Joe and Andy. He said, no, 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 what are you talking about? And by the time I finished it, he goes, I think this might be the best piece you've ever written. I was like, Jack, you can't be serious. If you think about, you know, because I'm maybe a bit more, you, it's natural maybe to feel more proud or safe with things that are like virtual, you know, like, I don't know. Yeah, Captain Phillips and all the big, massive, yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Or like Captain America Civil War or something like that. Not this like half-assed indie thing where I'm not even confident I've managed to play anything very well. And Jack goes, no, no, but that's why it's so good. 
because it's got this like weird vulnerability because you're not you know completely in command of all these instruments so it's really really honest i was like okay well i have to t- trust you so we played it to joe and anthony and they were like oh this is so beautiful it's perfect because it's sort of like it's naive and flawed and heartfelt and this will be great for emily and everything so I was, well i was really glad i i pursued it but it did feel a bit like being <laughs> uh, uh totally exposed in every conceive i mean you know just talk about you know because it's a different kind of if when you're acting especially in theater it's a certain kind of vulnerability you have to accept in order to perform it's like different as a composer because once you finish no one needs to see you know it's the music's like <laughs> embedded in but the whole experience of doing the score for cherry definitely felt like uh, uh, um extremely sort of exposed because there was so much experimenting that you just keep thinking well maybe this is complete crap we'll just have to find out when other people hear it <laughs> Tom's performance influence or inspire you at all? Oh, yeah. Pretty extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah. Very good. Oh, yeah. You don't, it's, uh, I remember it sort of in, in a, probably wasn't supposed to, when I was about 14 or 15, I remember watching Angel Heart, which I guess in the oh, UK would have been about 18. Right. So, but one of the things about it, uh, you know, Rob De Niro was already a legend by then. I remember literally about an hour into that movie going, wait a minute. That Louis Seifert, that's not Robert, is that Robert? Nah, that's not Robert, is that Robert De Niro? Because he'd sort of like, I know it's a cliche because any decent actor should completely transcend any of their previous connotations and disappear into the character. But as we all know, you know, like Robert De Niro achieves that at some like epic level that seemed such, I mean, I literally didn't even realise it was Robert De Niro. And every now and then, you know, I'd be working, because I spent, you know, I'd start working like six in the morning. I, every day I'd be working on this movie. And I, you, I just forgot when people go, oh, isn't Tom good? I'd be Tom, Tom who? Tom what? Oh, yes, of course. <laughs> it's, yeah, 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 yeah. In the same way that I just was like, no, that's Louis Cipher. That's not Robert De Niro. That's like, <laughs> so the compliment is he's so invisible you know, as any other thing that I sort of stopped thinking he was doing a great job because he just was Cherry. And I couldn't really conceive anything other than Cherry, which I, you know, as a cliche, isn't it? It's the ultimate. Uh, But one of the secret codes we found to the music was to, so so strong was his performance and so central, given that the movie covers a lot of distance, a lot of time, a lot of location, a lot of different things, never abandoning his point of view and sticking with him musically was always the move so a good example of that is you know when you first cut to the iraq stuff you've got big posh chopper shots of military hardware and sand dunes you know we've seen that before it's kind of you know it looks epic and it would be tempting to do like a big establishing you know imagine the sort of cue you'd get in a michael bay movie or in like black hawk down when you get like yeah. the big desert shot in the military hardware and that would speak to like a sort of third party viewpoint of like big movie um change of location it would sort of be playing a cue for the environment and if you listen to that key, that first key when you see a rock, it's so not like that. It's like a cross, it sounds a bit like that talk, talk, radio heady kind of vibe. It's, meaning the reason that's important is that music's not saying now we head into like a war movie about Iraq. What it's saying is now Cherry 
having made the decision to join, you know, as in the Marines as a doctor, now, now he's off. So it doesn't, you, you don't lose him. It doesn't yeah. suddenly become this big, you know, and it's certainly not some geopolitical movie about like, you it, You know, there's no stuff about um, whether it was a good idea for the Americans to be in Iraq or any politics. So all it is, is following the story of a guy who has left Cleveland and now finds himself in this environment and it never lets go of Cherry. And we found that that was the key with the music. Don't start playing environment and, and any kind of grandeur or judgmental third party commentary on the situation. Yeah. Just stay, stay with Cherry. That's what I try to do with the music, and that's why it goes on quite a journey, you know. Because by the time you get to the PTSD and the Oxycontin and the bank robberies and whatnot, yeah. you know, it, that that sort of Chopin ditty has turned into a kind of drug fuel. You know, all the sounds are getting bendy and messed up. You know, so that that really. So when you ask, was it <laughs> the answer is absolutely. You know, <laughs> I would say the the score tracked the character maybe more than any score I've done because you know with a more of a blockbuster thing, you're going to have cues that come out of characterization and and speak to other like omniscient things. Whereas this really kind of stuck to Cherry, it's, which is quite a unique thing as well. But it's like it's really interesting with with your relationship with the Russo brothers and working with them on um you know the Captain America films and then coming round to working on um Falcon and Winter Soldier, which I watched the I was privy to the first episode last night. So me and my two boys. Oh, wow. yeah. my... How did you I'm, I'm amazed you did that without needing to be shot. <laughs> well I mean I know we had I had like fifty five million codes to kind of like I had three seconds to get these codes in the computer before. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, rightly so. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I'm the this whole Disney Plus uh, stream of incredible content that you know that we're we're that they're making that we're being fed the you know Mandalorian, WandaVision. We've just eaten it up. It's been incredible, and particularly with with lockdown and stuff, it's been so nice to have something to look forward to every week. You know that we can yeah. wait for a Friday for it to come on, like the old days. You know what I mean when you'd when you'd have to wait for things. Yes. I wondered whether having worked on you know Captain America, and obviously you know Bucky being part of that story and his character and his story and that kind of coming through into Falcon and Winter Soldier, and very much from that first episode. I'm not going to go into any detail about it because I don't want to spoil it for anybody who won't have seen it yet. But whether that helped in a way that you had the 
the experience of that world. Oh, definitely. Yeah. In what way? Well, I mean, it would just be like, I don't, I'm trying to think of an analogy. It would be like, if you've spent three years in India and then I suddenly put you in charge of like some quite important company or something. And instead of landing in India going, wow, what the hell's going on? <laughs> you'd be able to focus on whatever that appointment was because instead of needing about three months to get your head around in, you said, like, no, no, I used to live here. You know, <laughs> yeah. it's, it's somewhat similar in that had I never been involved in the MCU, I guess I'll just have to do a lot of research. But the fact is, if you know the arc of Bucky and what happened to Bucky and the story of Captain America and the story of uh, Falcon, it just means you're sort of uh, setting off where you last left off. And you, it means you have an insight. Now, the thing is, without giving stuff away, it's actually going to move in quite a different direction. But just having the, the backlog of understanding of the MCU universe and having also create nothing else there are some themes that become handy to modulate and morph and, and work with in the new uh, environment so yeah that, that's not to say anyone coming into the MCU universe who hasn't been in it you know that doesn't mean it doesn't work but certainly it's such a sprawling and awesome universe there's a lot of new stuff you know so it's good to be able to have an instinctive understanding of the the history of some of these characters i mean i got so geeky with when i did the winter soldier because um, i'm I've, for some reason i'm really interested in politics i've no idea why i mean i just there's absolutely no way i will ever do anything professional in that but i've always found it interesting just con you know conceptually yeah and uh, when you look at the early captain i remember reading you know downloading on a on the on the ipad and whatnot really early captain america and it's fascinating how a lot of those people who turn their nose up, you know, uh, um, they shouldn't call them cars, but, you know, graphic novels, all the superhero universe should, should think twice. Because actually, if you were going to do a serious examination of American political history, you should include superhero graphic novels because they basically track the political and like <laughs> socio, uh, you know, philosophical viewpoint of America. Meaning when you read the original Captain America, they're hilarious. They're like government propaganda magazines where you know Captain America approaches like an eight-year-old child going do you know how to spot a communist allow me to help you <laughs> you know if you see a communist you must report them to the government and it, it you know it's like straight up 1950s propaganda in which Captain America is is like an unambiguous sentinel of liberty and freedom and there's no self-doubt about the supreme moral ascendancy of America and how bad the communists are and you know blah 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 and then when you read Captain America from the 70s, uh, you know, and Vietnam's kicked in, he's got a beard, he's disillusioned, he's drinking, he's like completely out of sorts with the American government. He doesn't believe in the wars that they're prosecuting. And it's like, oh, look, all that's happening is however American society feels, you know, it gets reflected in one of its most iconic uh, superheroes. So, you know, it's a bit like a, instead of reading Greek mythology from thousands of years ago, it's like a mythology that's being updated in real time yeah. And reflects values, you know, and some of those are encouraging values Like, you know, I can't remember exactly what the statistics are. But, you know, like Black Panther must be one of the most commercially successful films with an all African-American cast or black cast or whatever. So that, you know, that's an example of things shifting a universe which is accommodating things that are evolving now in our society and about time. Yeah. So, you know, I, I only mention that because some people like to be quite snooty. Yeah. They should, they should think twice about that, because especially, you know, with the Russos, if you look at Captain America Winter Soldier, there's the whole layer of what I'm talking about in there. I mean, you can enjoy it. It's a great movie anyway, to do with the action and the mystery of what, what happened to Bucky and the Winter Soldier and all the rest of it. But there's a whole layer in there to do with a libertarian thinking Captain America who's been in ice, who, when he returns in 2012, suddenly finds that things are a lot more ambiguous and shaky and not the kind of world that he understood where the Nazis are the bad guys and the yeah. Americans are the good guys. And then meanwhile, his own government seemed to be developing some like preemptive system to take out threats before they've even actually manifested, leading to like a sort of philosophical debate about, like, well, wait a minute, you know, it's like the pre-crime in Minority Report. <laughs> yeah. You know, that's all in there. And same in Civil War, Captain America Civil War has a whole thing to do with like, well, wait a minute, I know we try to help out and, you know, at Superhost <laughs> we do the best job we can, but the thing is, there is quite a lot of collateral damage. And like, I don't know, we're not actually part of the US government. So like, to whom should we, maybe we should be answerable, maybe there should be some sort of like UN 
you know, whatever. I'm saying it's got these these various things that if you want to go there, you could actually think about. It's not all. It's not infantile in the way that some slightly unthinking people who are critical of it would think. There's a scene in the first episode of of this the series where. Sam goes to the bank with his sister to try and get a loan. And, you know, the bank manager's, bank manager's going, so how do, is, you know, does, does, where does the, where does your money come? Does Tony Stark, did he, did he leave you some cash and all this kind of stuff? And it's kind of like me and my kids had about a 20 minute conversation out off the back of that, of them going, where do the Avengers get their money from? And all this yeah. kind of stuff. It was really fascinating on t- in terms of, even with that this first episode, it feels like it's kind of it's really humanizing these people, you know. And I've and I love that. Yes. Well, you mentioned before, and it's a salient point that you know, like when you have a movie, you've got to cram everything into this epic arc that's going to last between two and if it's Avengers Endgame three hours. But whereas when you have this other format, mm. you know, which is like uh, six lots of an hour, it gives you a slightly different character development opportunity because you know it's not the same as it's not like you have a six hour movie it's different structure but because you've got those six hours you can start exploring backstory and grounding things and making them quite realistic and psychologically credible in a way that you know you haven't got time you've got to squeeze in a whole story and and all the mcu characters in, in two hours 25 minutes you might not necessarily get the time to do that and that and i think Marvel and you know Kevin and and the directors in this one and 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 in all these newer Disney formats that it's been quite clever in in you know it's just a slightly different it's like a zip file that's sort of unpacking in a slightly <laughs> yeah. different way to the feature films and I think it's really smart rather than yeah. the fact that no one can go to the cinema rather than seeing that as some sort of restriction they've been really clever in celebrating this different format adapting it and playing to its strengths in a different way. Yeah. I was um, surprised when you mentioned earlier that you don't play the guitar because there's a great cue in this first episode where Sam arrives at the the jetty where the boat, where his family boat's parked up yeah. and his sister's, and there's this great cue there that's kind of got, it's quite kind of guitar laden. You surprise me. <laughs> well, I write that using samples and it's the same piece, but my God, it doesn't sound very good because it's all samples. <laughs> and then uh, that's played by, uh, a, 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 he's actually a great composer, but he's a brilliant guitar player, Alex Belcher. I then go, Alex, will you do me a favour and play this? <laughs> and uh, so my 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 writing, uh, if you'd heard that in the original sampled form, it's, it's you know, you can hear that it's a decent piece, but it's pretty awful to listen to. And then it just gets this whole great layer of performance courtesy of uh, Alex. Great cue. And I also love, there was another one that really stood out as well, where Bucky's in his therapy session. Oh, yeah. <laughs> See, that's something you don't normally get. There's no way you would get Bucky in a therapy session in a Captain America Winter Soldier, you know. I love uh, and I love the relationship with his therapist where she like just every time she grabs her notepad and he's like, oh, really? The notepad? And it's just yeah. the tone of it from this first episode is just like, I can't wait to watch the rest of it because it's just got a really interesting, you know, one minute you are kind of laughing and the next minute your heart's breaking um, when you when with one other with a character that Bucky's um, got a friendship with and you realize why. Um, and you're like, oh, whoa. So there's, there's I love this weight that it has in it and the, the tone that it feels like it's got, going to have as well. Well, exactly. And that, you know, it's also that impacts the music. It's it's slightly different when you do like, for example, Captain America Civil War, which was more orchestral than Winter Soldier because it was a bit more mythological and the it was almost like a proto Avengers movie, really. You know, by the time you get to the airport scene, it's kind of gods versus gods, you know, whereas musically, it's an interesting one. There is orchestra, but it's not as epic as Civil War. Or it does, you know, sometimes I mustn't give stuff away. It does get there. Mm-hmm. But in the way you're describing, you get these other scenes. You get scenes where, you know, Bucky's at the shrinks and you get <laughs> scenes where Sam's trying to sort out his, um, you know, more domestic ambitions and he needs a bank loan and all this. So so the music can enjoy some of these smaller into, you know, not a minute. It's not as it's not as obscure and sort of um, experimental maybe in the compositions cherry but some of the scale and the intimacy of you know using just a bit more band elements and guitar 
and smaller scale instrumentation definitely shows up in the series. But, you know, having said that, in true Marvel fashion, there comes a moment, you know, when it all kicks off. I mean, that first opening 10 minutes of Falcon in that kind of, you're like, yeah, exactly. this is amazing. Right. It, it covers everything from it, it. It's and the same with the music. It'll go as as epic as the movies. But I think there's just more time to explore also the smaller instrumentation. Yeah. And, and more grounded, you know, less mythological and uh, sort of, I don't know, less Wagnerian and slightly more contemporary as well. You, basically, you, can, you get to do a bit of all of the above, you know, and that's, that's one of the good things about the range that can show up in the, like I say, it's not really a six-hour film, but given that you've got these six episodes, yeah. you, you know, that there's a nice range to it, which they've really exploited in the actual, you know, filmmaking, as it were, so that then gets reflected in the music. I mean, the, the range that you have as a composer and the range of films that you walk across as well is, is kind of, is, you know, is, is amazing. And I imagine a wonderful, um, you know, opportunity to be able to walk across so many different types of films, you know, be it Captain America, Cherry, Man on a Ledge, you know, Kick-Ass, all that stuff. And then Big Hero 6 and Wreck-It Ralph and... I mean, an incredible mixture of films. Is that is that the attraction for you of being able to kind of just go from, you know, right to left to up to down and all over? I think it's brilliant. So. Well, every, you know, everyone comes in different shapes and sizes. And of course, you get certain kind of artists and composers who are very much the opposite, you know, like they've established themselves maybe more from the world of the record industry where they've got like a thing they do and it's so good. They become like known for a specific thing. Uh, my journey into film music was like the biggest psychic relief of my life, right? Because this is going to sound really pretentious, but because I had such a, a diverse and unbelievably intense musical training, you know? So I went to St. Paul's Cathedral Choir School as a little, you know, baby chorus. I think I was seven wow. when I went to... So I was singing from 12th century to 19th century ecclesiastical church music in St. Paul's Cathedral, three hours a day, for five years and had you know so it's like the strict so I got familiar with Palestrina and Talis and like what I won't bore you listen but you know extremely highbrow ecclesiastical music right up to and including like Benjamin Britten and Penderecki and all this 20th century stuff so I was part of something that was I suppose had to have the same like level of professional excellence as the London Symphony Orchestra when I was like eight years old so there was all of that you know, and then I, so I trained classically and then I went completely off the rails, you know, abandoned all that, like the vicar's son rebelling. And then, you know, I was banging out two step garage remixes and drum and bass <laughs> and then working in the record industry, trying to hide the fact that I learned everything from Scriab into Beethoven to, you know, Debussy <laughs> and all the rest of it. So by, by the time I got to 30 years old, I knew quite a lot about plain song or church music or Bach or Mozart. Or you know, I've had to write string quartets in the style of Haydn. I love Stravinsky, but I also love like Fabio and Groove Rider. It's just the biggest mess of stuff ever. So when I was trying to work in the record industry, I was like moderately successful, but I was always a bit like a cog not quite fitting in because, you know, however cool the music, I'm apart from stuff at the time, I don't know, like Bjork who's super creative. You know, it's always going to be about three and a half, four minutes. You can't have millions of strange harmonies and chords and whatnot. I mean, there's all sorts of, I'm not, I'm not distant. I mean, I've, there's loads of electronic uh, and pop music I absolutely love. And mm. I'm really glad I learned loads of techniques there, but I couldn't quite sort of put it all together. And then one day, for some reason, I was hanging out with Hans Zimmer by pure fortune. And I don't know why, I'd always thought of film music as something that like old fuddy-duddy people do. It's just like, I was like way too, trying to be too cool for school. And I suddenly realized, oh my God, the place where it doesn't matter <laughs> that you know just as much about 14th century church music as like you might need a load of like electronica chops that sound a bit like Harold Budd and Brian Eno, or you might need some like beat programming that sounds a bit like DJ Hype or Groove Rider or some dubstep, <laughs> whatever, is, is film music. Because one minute you might be, you know, you might be doing some film set in, I don't know, it's like 16th century France about how the Huguenots got massacred by the Catholics. Or you might be doing a film set in 22500 and everything's techie as hell and you don't mm -hmm. want any orchestra and everything, you know, blah, blah, blah. And suddenly having all these like disparate uh, threads to your musical education, instead of sitting there chewing my finger and I was going I don't know what am I going to do with all the, you know it suddenly it doesn't matter all it means is when you open the cupboard instead of going well I got a red I got a blue and I got a yellow you go oh crap there's like loads of stuff that doesn't mean that you're necessarily going to write good music it just means that 
it was suddenly not a burdensome lack of focus yeah. to have been dancing around in so many different. And the thing is, my father was influential in that because often what happens is people are into a certain kind of music or they prioritize a certain kind of music. Whereas without being pretentious, I genuinely love Benjamin Britten as much as, you know, like really good uh, drum and bass. Uh, well, it, I- and it's just like, de- depending on what mood, mood you're in, it usually people who are seriously classical yeah. tend not to have a, a, a strong interest in really uh, heavy electronic genres and people who are seriously into DJing and have a brilliant knowledge of the entire electronic thing from like late 80s Chicago house all the way through to now are unlikely to be prattling on you know about like Vaughan Williams the two camps it's not always true you know but the two camps tend to be a bit separate whereas I ended up with a foot in both camps absolutely loving both which was confusing for years until I got into film music where I suddenly was really grateful that it was the world that accepts everything yeah I think it's funny, I watch my kids and I remember, you know, when you were growing up, you were into a type of music, you know, oh, what are you into? And you would kind of sort of sit on, you know, on on one kind of sort of pad of music, so to speak. But my kids don't don't think about music with genre. Genre is not important to them. It's not something they think about. And I think it's so healthy. And so much of that is because of film. You know, they'll connect with a piece yeah, of... that's interesting, yeah. They'll connect, connect with a piece of existing music, like one of the tracks from the Guardians of the Galaxy film or whatever. Do you know what I mean? One of those 70s tracks. They'll connect with that as much as they will. They just feel, with, it's just instinctive. It's an emotion. Yeah. It's a kind of... They, it makes them feel a certain way, as well as a piece of music within a film. I mean, we'll have... They'll pick, they'll sit and they're, you know, they're always in charge of the music now when we're in the car or whatever, and they'll click on Spotify and they'll go to score sometimes. And my eight-year-old will tell me what's happened in the scene for this particular piece of music. It blows my mind that they pay that much attention. Well, I mean, they've got you to thank for that. To I mean, the thing is, I mean, we don't want to sort of descend into like a full like, Oxford-style seminar, but the reason <laughs> that there's, that there's two, or ascend, or like side send. Let's dance there instead. <laughs> yeah, it, well, it's an interesting thing because when, if, if you're a teenager and your parents have not exposed you, say, to, to, to film music, so you have this more eclectic range of music, which is obviously what your kids have, there's the identity version of music, meaning, you know, when you're a teenager, you've no idea who you are, you're confused. And to a certain extent, the music, it's not really that people aged 14 are doing like a musicological breakdown of how, you know, how this thing's been put together. It's an identity thing. Like, you know, when I was a kid, some people were still, I thought I was super cool because like we hated guitars and everything was right. We were all going to raves. No one cared, like guitars were uncool. Rock music was uncool, you know, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, a lot of these things are to do with clothes and identity. And it's, yeah. too, uh, it's like for the, for the sort of psychic identity of someone who hasn't yet found themselves to be able to like hang their hat on something. Yeah, feel part of something, isn't it? Yes, but that, that's actually a social phenomenon, not a musical. Now, what's happening with your kids, thankfully, is that because the range of stuff is so wide, you know, if, if you watch movies, you could hear anything like from some funk track from Guardians of the Galaxy. It's a massive sweeping orchestral track, which is maybe closer to a sort of 1920 Vaughan Williams piece they're responding literally more to what the music's doing and not using it as a means of uh, providing an identity for themselves but I think one of the reasons I was so apart from let me just move over here one of the reasons I just never got like snobby about different kinds of music was I just really want to know how things work you know like a Swiss watch kind of a thing yeah and I promise I had this one experience when I was at, at the cathedral choir there's one piece I think I was only about nine years old and there's one piece we were singing by Elgar and literally all the hairs went up on the back of my neck and it was just like this cosmic, I could not understand how this piece of music could, I mean, I was barely able to see, it was like electrifying. And at the end of it, when we finished the piece, I was like, I guess I'll never know why that happened. You know, why it was such an amazing experience. And then I was thinking, well, hang on, that's not true. If I get the score, I'll learn, you know, I was only about nine, so it was a bit difficult to play. I was like, I could just figure out you know, unlike trying to get the secret industrial secrets of like Chanel or Mars Bar or something, you know, <laughs> music can't hide. So, and it was just this thing that went.
when it got to that, bit, wow. I was like, wow, that's good. So I, le- I think I learned the, and then I started having this other thought, which is like, wait a minute, I should not just learn to play it like a piano player. I should sort of figure out the chords and then write my own half-assed rip-off piece, you know, meaning I figured out you can start bagging tricks. Like, why does this sound so cool? And so one of the reasons I was never snobby at music is like once I start having had all this classical education, when I first heard like dance music started doing things like, I was like, no, 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 that's the wrong chord. Right, you can't go C minor, F minor, B flat minor. That's like so incorrect until I realized these DJ guys just sampled a chord and they were just hitting one key. So they were just going like, whacking, you know, one key. And instead of being snobby about it, I was like, well, I should figure out how that works. So every time I heard one of these, you know, every time I heard something that was very non-classical, instead of being snobby about it, it's like, well, you should figure out how it works. You should always figure out how it works. So I'd be sitting there at the piano going like, going, oh, I get it. So these are totally different. You know, you don't get chords like that in, in um, you know, like uh, <laughs> in Beethoven. Or and then, yeah, exactly. You know, things like. Oh, lush. Right. And I'm like, oh, these are actually very cool in other words all i'm saying is everything's worth checking out so i think one of the reasons i ended up having a quite a lot of different musical strands is there were very few things where i just would think well that's a lot of waste of time and there's no point finding out about it i would hear something and go and i'd hate the feeling of not knowing how they do that basically Mm. you know what i mean can you remember you're probably younger than me there was some pop tune by robbie neville called c'est la vie yeah and it was like late it was late 80s yeah i remember it so cool because I figured out pretty quickly the chords were just going so I play on the piano but it sounds crap and I play on but how come the record sounds so good and then that was the beginning of me uncovering like oh okay so it seems like there's a whole lot of other stuff I got to learn (laughs) meaning if you just play the chords of a really well produced like pop track on a piano that's not going to sound nearly as cool as the record because the record has this whole new thing I didn't know about to do with like drum machines and engineering and synths and stuff. Okay, so now there's this whole, in other words, thanks to my father, who had a really eclectic attitude. My, every time I stumbled across something like, oh, hang on. So how do they do this? Instead of going, well, I'll stick. Look, come on. I've already had the history of music from 1300 to 19, whatever. I don't need to <laughs> do a whole, I, you know, I'd hate not knowing how things were done, you know, so I just. That's great advice for anyone who wants to, you know, who wants so, well, to think of it. just disagree. No, I think it's, I think it's, you know, I mean, that's why I, that's why I do this podcast because I'm fascinated by the relationship that with pictures and music, you know, in terms of, of how it, how it works and, and how, it's created and the emotion it could convey. And- well, exactly. I mean, I mean, I've just been messing around with some like early 90s electronic, but it's the same thing with if you're really interested on why things work, you know, if you're watching a movie and there's a cue that's really doing something, like why, why is this so good? It's like, well, you know, it's not, you can find out by getting the score or getting the track, listening to it. It's, I guess, I suppose it's like a version of a sort of scientific inquiry in a way. But anyway, the advantage of that is it, it sort of prevents musical snobbery and I think you know I was really lucky to be a fly on the wall uh, in a sort of Hans Zimmer universe for a little bit I think as a mentor he's very like he's extremely unjudged if you look at everything Hans Zimmer's done since he's started making music he's so unjudgmental he's done things like Da Vinci Code with these big 
and sort of brooding Wagnerian orchestra. He's done there like the Joker suite from Dark Knight. Is it like a million miles away from, you know? It... Interstellar, oh, one of my favorites. Yeah. Oh, Interstellar, like... which has like hints of Vavo part and Estonian, you know, church music. He's incredibly eclectic minded mm. and is neither judgmental in his approach to what a score needs musically. And it's never judgmental about characters. I think one of the reasons Hans is such a brilliant composer is you'll get a lay, not of sympathy, but something like the joke, the Joker, the music for the Joker was so perfect for the Joker and it didn't have any judgment in it about yeah. what, what a potentially appalling nihilist and a terrible character was. It's the, you know, it's finding out how to bring out a character without sort of finger wagging third party opinion showing up, mm -hmm. letting go of yourself and inhabiting the story and the character, which brings everything to life. Let the judgment be made by the audience. Don't start late. I mean, you know, it's not always, sometimes, you know, you want to do a cue where you have a very strong sense of like, you know, evil or heroism or something. But I definitely learned something from the lack of judgment and the eclectic and very open mind because Hans, if you think about Hans it's really similar he he's covered everything from giant orchestration to sort of minimal electronica without yeah. a second thought you know but yeah but you can I mean the 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 similarities with you that's the enthusiasm that you both have as well for what you do it's like just it's so it's so inspiring hearing how much you love what you do and and you know, well, kind it of just, be, it's so, yeah. Kind of similarities because Hans is like the single most successful and, <laughs> and like aesthetically influential film composer of the last, you know, how many years? I don't think I'm quite in that. I'm definitely in a, in a, a lower order category than that. But we definitely are both enthusiastic and eclectic, I'd say that. But yeah. Hans is more like a game changer. So not, Hans is important not just because of the music, more like a sort of black swan event, you know, a bit like Brian Eno. Brian Eno is just as important as like an influence as... as specific albums that he's made. I feel Hans is a bit like that, meaning something kind of shifted in film music. If you look at film music in its traditional yeah. sense, in the with, without any, you know, John Williams is an absolute genius. But if you think to an era of 
Alex North or John Willis, where something happens where the, the generation from Hans onward, of, of which I think Hans is definitely the strongest representative. It's like a sort of black swan event where something shifts in a, in a, definitely. In a big way that, that ripples on beyond just the actual music he's making. It's more like a sort of volcanic influence event. You know yeah. what I mean? And yeah. Those come around. Those don't come around that often. You know, I don't think the, those sort of events don't really grow on trees. I feel like we've only kind of skimmed the surface of the brilliant work that you've done so far. So maybe we can um, maybe we can have another another session at some point down the line. But it's. um. Yeah, I'm going to have to split. Yeah, well, I, my problem is I, I sort of waffle tangentially. Oh, no, it's brilliant. I love <laughs> it. It's, you're, the, you're the dream. Um, but it's but it's it's been so great to get to chat to you. You really, really has. And just, um, yeah, thank you as well, you know, from. Well, that's not a problem. Can edit something together, vaguely useful, and uh, yeah, maybe I'm. I've got a few things going, but maybe yeah, we could do something where I talk a bit more about you know. Cause I was looking on. Uh, I was trying to find something on IMDb the other day, and I saw a list of everything I've done. I'm like bloody hell, that is quite a lot. Yeah, because <laughs> you don't. <laughs> yeah. When you're it's good. well, when you're working, it, you you give everything so devotedly and exclusively to the thing you're working on yeah it's a bit like burning your bridges as you go you become by the same token you become committed to the thing you're doing you sort of delete and forget everything that's gone before so when you actually see it all in a line you're like when how did that all happen and you've sort of forgotten <laughs> the processes that go into which i think is important because it's you, i think you have to let go very strongly and that by the same token that's the you know the headspace yeah that you freed up to launch into the next thing. But yeah, I'm no doubt I could fill up another hour of random prattling about uh, things that I've actually done. To date. I love it. In the past. Thank you so much for your time. Right. It's a bl- blooming treat to get to chat to you. It really is. Thank you. No problem. Well, stay safe and uh, we'll speak again. Falcon and the Winter Soldier, that's Louisiana Hero, running off this latest episode of Soundtracking with the fantastic Henry Jackman. My huge thanks to Henry for taking the time to talk to us, as I mentioned. You can watch Cherry on Apple TV with Falcon and the Winter Soldier, available on Disney+. Hopefully, fingers crossed, we'll get Henry back again very soon to discuss his extraordinary back catalogue in more detail. Head to edithbowman.com to catch up with all of our previous episodes, including my two conversations with the Russo brothers, as well as Black Panther director Ryan Coogler. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. We are at Soundtracking UK. And please do subscribe to our YouTube channel where you'll find a wee show that I put together to accompany the podcast. We've got a new episode dropping over the next couple of days which will feature Jamie Dornan, Steve McQueen and Dennis Bevel and also the fantastic Morvid Clark who of course stars as Maud in the brilliant Saint Maud. Now before I let you know who's coming up next, just to give you an idea who we do have coming up over the month of April because we've got a fantastic collection of nominated talents. Um, we have Kevin McDonald talking about the Mauritanian. We have Chloe Zhao talking about the brilliant Nomadland. We have Emerald Fennell and Carrie Mulligan talking about promising young woman next week talking about this beautiful film that if you get the chance to see it's called Minari and I just absolutely adored this film I thought it was absolutely beautiful Uh, Lee Isaac Chung is the writer and director and it's loosely based on his own experiences we're very lucky that we have Emile Mossery the composer of the stunning score for Minari on the show so I very much look forward to the pleasure of your company then This is the smell of the leftover tuna fish sandwich you left in your lunchbox over the weekend in a wimpy trash bag. Wimpy, wimpy, wimpy! 
And this is the smell of that same sandwich in a hefty, ultra-strong trash bag. Hefty, hefty, hefty! Ah, <sighs> smell the difference? Hefty Ultra Strong has Arm & Hammer with continuous odor control, so no matter what's inside your trash... Hmm. You can stay one step ahead of Stinky. And for bigger jobs, try the superior strength of Hefty Large Black Bags. 